makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Greetings and good day and welcome relatives. I shake your hand with a good heart. This is a voicing from the heart. It's good for all of us to be here. This is First Voices Radio and Teokas and Ghost Horse sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Asopus or what Americans and Dutch call the Catskill Mountains. Regardless, it is the highlands of the Asopus in the lands of the Muncie-speaking Lenape. This is an all-native-hosted, all-native-produced First Voices Radio, and Liz Hill is the producer of First Voices Radio. You can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as First Voices, IndigenousRadio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. Our guest today, Elnor Lata, is an activist, journalist, political strategist, and community organizer. From 2012 to 2019, he was a co-founder and executive director of the Global Activist Collective, The Rules. He is currently the council chair for the Culture Hack Labs. Joining Alnor, Lynn Murphy is a strategic advisor for foundations and NGOs working in the geopolitical South. She was a senior fellow and program officer at the William and Floral Hewlett Foundation, where she focused on international education and global development. She resigned as a conscientious objector to neocolonial philanthropy. Lynn and Alnor are the co-directors of Transition Resource Circle, focusing on the broader transition from our current meta-crisis to adjacent possible futures. They work with resources and resource holders to alchemize and liberate capital to be in service to life. They are also co-authors of the new book, Post-Capitalist Philanthropy, Healing Wealth in a Time of Crisis, so in a good way, I welcome you to First Voices Radio. And in this way, the voices that we come from the heart, first voicings are from the heart. And this is one of the reasons I wanted both of you, Lynn Murphy and Elnor Ladha, and talk about this book, The Post-Capitalist Philanthropy, Healing Wealth in a Time of Crisis. Thank you for having us, Tio It's an honor yeah. to be with you. Yeah. As a listener and a layman, when it comes to economics and that world of finance, and even the language that we use to understand the world of finance, this capitalism, most people, even though they participate, they live in it and they vote for it and 
they give tithes to it, that their mind is also being tithed, the tithing of the mind to capitalism. So I want to ask both of you, what do you mean by post-capitalism? So when we invoke this term post-capitalism, we're, we're not saying that this is the ism that comes after capitalism. That, that can be the, the kind of common inference of, of that. Um, we mean it in the way that postmodernism talks about modernism, right? Informed by, right? We think of it that way, informed by. And so the starting places will actually, what is capitalism? Capitalism is a system that prejudices the expansion of capital over all else. And it does that through the growth function, growth and debt. So money is created by debt, and then it has to grow faster than the interest rate for that money to be valuable. That's the economics 101 of it. That's how simple it is. You've got to grow the pie a little bit more than the amount of debt you have so that money can be paid back. It's a, it's a Ponzi scheme. And it requires perpetual infinite growth, which is obviously not sustainable. And, uh, and we're, we're seeing what the, the limits of that model is, right? And we have for, for many, many years. And what it requires for its growth is any means necessary. Colonialism, imperialism, genocide, plunder, resource extraction, commodification of the land, of human beings, of more than human beings. These are the necessary inputs, perpetual war. These are not externalities, as the economists say, right? These are not side effects of capitalism. These are the requirements of capitalism and the, the machinery of this existing operating system to continue. And so we have to be informed by that. If we're going to create possible adjacent futures, other realities, and, and we're also noting that these other realities have happened historically, they're happening now, um, that there are and have been cultures that are already living what we call post-capitalism. In the sense that when we look at the values of capitalism, well, what does it require, right? We just have to look around us. Short-termism, greed, extraction, commodification, separation from the natural world, dualism. It requires you know, all of this ideological machinery as well. And so post-capitalism is like, let's look at that in full shadow and full light. Let's not amputate any aspect of this and know that we are all complicit and entangled in this thing. And then use that critique and that analysis as a starting place to say, how do we create cultures that are based on the opposite values and life-centric values? Generosity, reciprocity, cooperation, solidarity, etc. And so that's what we mean by informed by. And we're not saying there's any one way to do capitalism. Uh, sorry, post-capitalism. There isn't a, it's not like uh, there's a blueprint. Uh, it's, it's, but there's things that we gesture towards, which is uh, bioregional, local, uh, food, ladder, uh, food, water, land, energy, medicine, education, cultural sovereignty at, at, a, at a local level. And these values inform the way by which people work together at that, at that level. Maybe that's a place to, to stop and let Lynn add to that. Maybe just two things that come to me to add to that is the, the first 
being recognizing that there are peoples all over this planet who've been living post-capitalist realities for hundreds of years. Those that have already lived and, and have had to survive the onslaught of capitalism and colonization that have been living these values. Um, and we don't say that with some sort of a, a, a gaze of outside, but more to honor those that are already living this and living what we're, we're speaking to. And also many of the solidarity movements right now that are living these post-capitalist realities from Rojava to the Zapatistas to many different indigenous peoples across this planet. And in that way, when I look at what we're trying to get to of the roots of what where we see ourselves in late stage capitalism, and in the book we talk about that in the the ideology of neoliberalism, what I get when I get to the roots of that, it feels like there's a, a deep root of of domination, of of exerting will and feeling of entitlement over land, over peoples. Um, in a way. And so when we're trying to invoke this post-capitalist reality, it's a way of really coming back into right relationship, of getting to the roots of where this market system that commodifies everything and, and thing being the operative word, kind of deadening rather than enlivening and being in a relational kind of more animate way of seeing and living from the gaze. When I think about what capitalism is in the definitions you gave, Elnor, Lynn, Lynn, you became a conscientious objector. And a lot of people are seeing they're at the edge, at the verge right now to what's beyond capitalism. And we can talk post-capitalism. What is necessary to get us through to this point of realizing when capitalism is over? Because even now we say uh, late stage capitalism, but many of the people aren't even there yet. Is this book part of not just saving, because I'm not going to use save, is here to save or, you know, turn people around, but become more aware is what I'm thinking about. So the point of a crisis, we could say, well, there is climate change, climate crisis, but in the indigenous vernacular, we are saying climate damage. So we're coming from the damage that's been done. And most people who are still in the throes of capitalism and, and actually stringing themselves along without even knowing it, the language has to change. Is that part of this book is to understand the language we're speaking? In a way, it's exactly that. It's what, when I feel into language, it's an abstraction or a realm of symbology. And it's what we can see and what we, we can't see or the way that we make sense of reality itself. And so we're not just trying to get into the semantics of whether it's late stage capitalism or it's, you know, the, the neoliberalism, but we're wanting to grapple with a word we, we speak about a lot of ontology, our very way of seeing a being and not just getting into the externalized language or symbology, but shift the very way that we might um, have a relationship with language, even in the nonverbal realms or a relationship with um, the more than human realm. And what is the language that we're listening and in relationship with the more than human realm? That's where I would start on that. Yeah. And maybe I'll start, I'll go back one step and then, and then come back to where Lynn was and say that um, even this idea of late stage capitalism, it doesn't mean it's going to end anytime soon, right? It, it means that um, it's becoming more and more desperate. 
as uh, growth slows down, right? And so, you know, if oil is at $70 a barrel and fracking costs $69 a barrel, they will frack all day long, right? Like the, that's the desperation for that $1, even though there's all of these consequences that are understood. And, you know, this is also what it means to go into emerging economies, right? The so-called global South. And uh, it's, it's as the, the growth machine slows down, which of course as material resources dwindle and, and uh, labor organizes itself and, you know, all, all of those things, the forces of industrial capitalism and globalization are going to continue to extract more. The boom and bust cycles are going to become more intense. The police state and military industrial complex, the apparatus of violence, of state violence that's required to prop this thing up are going to continue more intensely. And, and so then the, the question is, how do we create other realities and, and also amplify these other realities that already exist, as Lynn pointed to, uh, indigenous communities, resistance communities like the Zapatistas and Rojava that, that are sort of living these, these values. And part of what we're pointing to is that it's not just a shift in what we do. The old kind of linear understanding, like we do X and then Y will happen, right? This is part of the, the Occidental mind, the Western gaze. Part of what we're saying when we point to these ontological shifts, and, and by ontology, it's just a fancy word of, for saying uh, our theory of being, how we see the world, how we relate to the world, how, how we understand our place in it. And so in some ways, by shifting our gaze, by shifting the manner by which we approach, we will be met through an animistic world and an animistic universe's co-creation, right? As opposed to the solutionism of, of Western liberal rational thought that we're going to solve our way out of this. Like this is not a book about solutionism. It is, a, it is a book about reflection and contemplation and stepping back and seeing our complicity, not just in what we do and how we behave, but how our very gaze and the language we use is locking the world into a certain path dependency. Any thoughts, Lynn? Just as Elnor just said that, I was feeling, you know, where we were talking before of where you look at path dependency and there's so much going on within games that kind of describe and there's only certain amount of paths that you can go down. And this is the deep, this is the roots of what we feel like hundreds of years, if not thousands of years of where we've gone with domination and exploitation and thingification of humans of the more than human realm have left, left us into this place where people are really hungry for solutions and sitting in the uncomfortable of not just we're saying what the solutions are, but sitting with the uncomfortable and finding within us that is craving like the comfort of a solution or just tell me what to do, but sit in the uncomfortable and find what is our gaze, what is ours to do and listen from another place and listen with the more than human realm and have the humility to recognize that we've gotten ourselves into this mess. And so we're not going to be the ones to necessarily with that get out. Um, that's what I would, would add and what we're, we're offering with this book as a, as a set of reflections. Just a thought, there was this thing called the New American Project where the Occidental Mind people 
would be taking over municipalities, court systems, whatnot. And that seems to be what's going on now. That it's in place. And the idea about freedom, which the, the neoliberal that the left basically has brought forward at that time, felt like we were the project, that we were being tested. And now that's applicable to anything being free, that we go into, they are looking for, for instructions to what do we do now? Because the, the lack of thinking for oneself to, is no longer a collectivism or solidarity. It's more individualism. What I'm thinking is that the philanthropy you talk about is, yes, post-capitalist philanthropy, but the healing wealth, I really want to get into that word, um, these words, healing wealth or healing the wealth. There's so much to say on it, right? It, 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 there's even a question of, can wealth be healed, right? And we're not even saying there's there, there's an answer to that. But I, I think the starting point is, like, from whence does the wealth come? Yes. Right. And and this is why we start the book and situate it within what we call the pyramid logic of, of neoliberalism. Right. It's, it's a pyramid logic. It's uh, there's a set of rules and these rules are generative. And uh, when you create things like money as debt and compound interest, right, the people who are capital holders get exponential capital and the people who are debt holders get exponential debt. It's just the natural outcome. When you create a system that is based on uh, on fossil fuel energy, ecological collapse and species destruction is the logical outcome. When you create a system that's based on growth by any means necessary, then war and imperialism and colonialism and pillage are the logical outcome. And then all the alibis that come with that, right? All the shifts in ideology that are required, the, the creation of dualism, right? The idea that uh, humans and nature are separate and humans are higher than nature, right? That we are the pinnacle of evolution as opposed to the youngest species, the most immature species, right? We, 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 it requires dominion over. And so all capital is therefore tainted because all capital has its own history, right? It, it has its own antecedents. It, it was sort of invented in Western Europe and then imposed over the world, right? We used to have many ways to acquire goods and services, hunting, bartering, gifting, fishing. All of that is closed down, regulated, quote unquote, regulated, right? The commons were enclosed. And then uh, colonialism coincides with the creation of these fiat currencies. And now there's only one way to acquire goods and services or exchange, which is debt-based capital which was forced upon peoples everywhere by sword and gun. And so even the, this strange contrast of bringing together philanthropy and, 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 and post-capitalism, it's like, why, why start there? There's lots of reasons to do that. One is we, we are uh, living in a culture that believes, and you, you hear this kind of logic all the time, go make money, but, you know, by whatever means, right? Be a day trader, a banker, a lawyer, whatever. And then you can go do philanthropy, right? And, and that's the philanthropic model we have, right? You have the robber, the robber barons of the 20s and 30s, the Carnegies and the Rockefellers literally invented philanthropy in its modern form. The model is, let's not think about the consequences of our destruction. And then let's do a little bit of good to create the emotional, psychological, spiritual alibi to continue the pillage, 
And and so part of the 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 inquiry of the book is like when you ask the question from whence does the wealth come, a very different set of answers come to then what you should do with it. And we're not saying this is the healing of wealth, right? Because there is no the, there's no kind of universal experience in this. But perhaps by understanding the destructive nature of capital, there can be some kind of liberation of capital. You can put it out of its misery, if you will. We can use capital as what it is in, on one level as a way to organize labor and energy and time. In the short period of time we have left where it will even be useful, everything is pointing towards collapse, right? Material bounds, planetary bounds, um, boom-bust cycles, the limits of growth, all of it. Um, social unrest, spiking inequality, spiking pandemics, you name it, right? The, this this train is not going to keep on going, right? And so how do we use capital to build post-capitalist infrastructure? Infrastructure mm -hmm. for local bioregional sovereignty, for cooperation, for interbeing with the more than human world. Like, and, and, and it's not sustainable infrastructure. That's not what we're looking for, but more symbiotic ways of living and being. And in the short window of time left, and you know, I don't know, maybe we have 10 years, maybe we have 20 years left, max, of this way of living. But the idea that things are going to continue on as they are is, is an illusion, right? And, and we all feel it somatically. We feel it in our bodies, right? As there's the, this kind of event horizon in parking orbit somewhere, right? And, and, and we feel that. And, and wealth and money can play a role and philanthropy right now thinks it's playing a role, but part of what we're arguing is part of the crisis is the way philanthropy is trying to address the crisis. And even the way activism is trying to address the crisis. That we actually need to, to step back from what we're doing and, and put it all on the table. All the, the dialectical bits, right? The ontology, the cosmologies, put it all on the table for us to, to take stock of what we're doing and how we continue to perpetuate systems of oppression and destruction. Mm. Lynn, you have any? A couple of pieces to add. You know, this, we were, when we were trying to feel what the title of this were, we, we went, worked with wealth more than what is money because that's a whole other energy of it. But in a way, we're pointing to this disease of accumulation that is there right now within the wealth holders and that really trying to see what the, the weight of that is and the disease of what is going on with excessive greed, with excessive accumulation. And in a way, it could almost be like a liberation of that and or for us to look upon that not through the gaze of hero worship because our culture, the Occidental mind tends to see those who have wealth or money and have more zeros in their bank accounts and have the foundations of there's almost an, uh, a mimetic unconscious or semi-conscious bias that says they've done right or they're better than. And in a way, we're trying to point out that disease of accumulation and what is going on there with that and what is going on with our, our hero worship, almost of those who have like undue concentrations and I, I feel it almost like a dam that is is stuck rather than the 
the idea that wealth wants to flow like water and wants to flow to the lowest places and will naturally carve its way through and with the power and force that will carve canyons, but will find where it wants to go. And in this way, we're trying to bring back a sense of agency or liberation of, of where wealth wants to go. What we're speaking through our subjective view of what is post-capitalist infrastructure or supporting um, some resurgence of some creative ways of imagining worlds besides the worlds of where we are and finding what it is to walk in solidarity with those who have already been living and stewarding lands and places of post-capitalist realities. That's our subjective view, what we've come to of what might this moment where you can use capital to support a transition from this late stage capitalism. Mm. Um, and the other thing I would add is that when I really sit in contemplation of what is true wealth, again and again, what I get is it's living in the spirit of the gift. And that brings to me a whole quandary of, am I in right relationship? Am I in reciprocal relationship with everything of recognizing the gift of this water, of this cup, of this air that I'm breathing? Am I in an every moment ongoing praxis of actually living in the spirit of the gift? And the gift is relational, right? I guess in some ways that's what we're pointing to, right? That, like uh, wealth is not what we think it is. It is not the accumulation of resources. Wealth is a sense of relationality that we have with each other, with the more than human realm, with the, the, the living planet, that there's, there's something else happening. And, and why we start with neoliberalism is also to say, like, we have to understand how deep this ideology is conditioned within us and entrained within us, right? And Lynn pointed to one aspect, which is, uh, wealth holder, somehow morally superior, uh, poor person, moral failure, right? Uh, wealthy person uh, has the right to make the decisions on where money should go, even though they may know nothing about social change, right? Bill Gates makes his money on software and then all of a sudden he's an expert on uh, global health and development, right? Uh, the Sort of also the ahistorical amnesiac nature of neoliberalism, right? Of the, of the current kind of economic model. Like no understanding of where this money comes from. And when we deepen into the contemplation of this, we realize that the world's wealth is our collective endowment, right? That Bill Gates went to school that was funded by taxpayer money and roads that were paid for us, paid by people and an internet that was paid for by uh, the collective Right, and at every moment, there's not like the idea of the individual is so insane and so disconnected, right? Because we flush a toilet that requires, you know, 500 years of engineering and water, and you know, there's nothing that we're doing that is not created by other people, and then we isolate that and create this little vacuum called wealth creation or our vocation or work, and then all of a sudden, that is our private affair. And, and we're seeing the consequences of that mindset, right? And, and the hero worship that Lynn talked about. And that's the first half of First Voices Radio's interview with Lynn Murphy and Elnor Lada, the co-authors of Post-Capitalist Philanthropy, Healing Wealth in a Time of Crisis. My name is Teoksen Ghost Horse. As the current structure hits the limits of the physical world, 
there's an increasing enthusiasm for geoengineering, blockchain, artificial intelligence, and other techno-utopian savior ideologies that attempt to bypass the consequences of our historical actions. As Wendell Berry reminds us, we are not likely to be granted another world to plunder in compensation for our pillage of this one, nor are we likely to believe much longer in our ability to outsmart, by means of science and technology, our economic stupidity. Within the halls of solutionism, there is rarely an acknowledgement of the drivers of historical wealth creation, including colonialism, enslavement, genocide, white supremacy, patriarchy, imperialism, perpetual war, pillage, and accumulation by dispossession. Rather, neoliberalism tells us that we must pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, much like the descendants of the vanquishers around us, and aspire to find meaning in their same extractive consumers' ways of living and being. And we'll return to First Voices Radio after these. Welcome back to First Voices Radio. This is Teokasin Ghost Horse. And this next one here is for the system.
and ghost stories. Let's return to the interview with Lynn Murphy and Alnor Ladha about the book Post-Capitalist Philanthropy, Healing Wealth and in a Time of Crisis. And I give you this. Let me give you this, this thought process. Okay, ownership, forms of lending, contracts. Well, basically, under the, the guise of... Um, the new kind of human being that's coming out of the, the, the fodder, basically, that from the old survival mechanism, that doomsday, we're going to dig a hole and put supplies in it and survive out of that. That may not exist. What is the actual work that needs to be done? But I'm thinking, well, we experience that we as indigenous peoples have been through post-capitalism. It, it came with Columbus, the new world the new human being, the new kind of ownership, the new kind of money lending. It's always this new, when actuality, it's just about being the human being related with the earth rather than looking for connections to survive within it. At the, the, the last part of the book moves into this way that we're, we're sitting with like, so how do we respond to this moment? What then shall we do? How then shall we be? And um, for where Alnor and I were looking at this, we saw kind of these this kind of spiral in a way of moving in and moving out at the same time. And the first is a, a deep sense of um, and an ongoing practice of surrender of like letting go of control in a in a very profound way and it's not a one and done kind of a piece it's a it's a cultivation i mean in my my practice i really sit deeply with what is surrender and when my my ego and especially the conditioning of my occidental mind wants to control or wants to know what the outcome is and wants to continue the the comfort the con- the the conditioning, the consumption of the way of, of being and living that I have accustomed and my and my loved ones and my communities and, and my peoples have been navigating. And it's a deep call for surrender. And in that, the, the second piece of that is a recognition that we're in an initiatory moment, that we are kind of on a, cra- a threshold. 
And can we cross this threshold um, and see it in the initiatory moment that it is? And this is where we are speaking to this this ontological shift, the shift of our gaze, the very way that we see reality itself and sitting with that very profoundly and what that means. Um, And what is it for us to be in an ongoing, like someone like me who incarnated in this lifetime as a white presenting woman who has the occidental mind, what is it to, to recognize there's an ever ongoing deconditioning that I have to do of a legacy of domination um, and exploitation and feeling that I either need certainty or I'm entitled to certainty. Because we can reckon with sometimes ownership and letting go of ownership and imagine other things. But sometimes it's those other ones that we still are attached to, having an entitlement to. Um, and so really reckon with this as an initiatory moment. And then we we then sit with how do we re-enter the continuum of life and death that ever has been and ever shall be that the, this Western culture and logics and way of being separated ourselves from. It's like re-entering this stream that and taking responsibility for that we separated ourselves from that. And in that way, walking each other into the unknown because we don't actually know. That's back to the 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 entitlement for certainty in a way. So this is one way I would say that that we're um, sitting with how to meet this moment, both within ourselves, within our relations, and within kind of the superstructure that we see ourselves in that moment. And, uh, and, and certainty and novelty are so connected, right? To, to link back to your thought about newness, right? Yokosin is... Uh, the new world and technology will save us and cryptocurrency and whatever going to the Mars, the new colonization. We, we live in a culture that is present phobic. It's death phobic as well. And so we, we are in this attempted onward march towards progress to some other place. Right. And that disconnection with it, comes so many consequences as we we try to put our sort of flag of certainty into the next new place that will give us some meaning and some solace because we separated ourselves from the living world and from this cycle of life and death and we, we we've sort of reified our ego the kind of small s self so strongly that it it, it doesn't know its place in the wider cosmos and that is orphanhood. That's spiritual orphanhood. It's cosmic orphanhood. And then everything we do is trying to fill this kind of God-sized hole, whether that's consumption, whether that is acquisition, or whether that's philanthropy, or whatever alibi we use to, to try to get on with the, the human enterprise without first doing the historical reckoning that's required, without honoring our ancestors and both the shadow side and the consequences of their behaviors, as well as the legacies of the cultures that they built. So instead of going forward, perhaps like part of what we need to do is, is stop to be in the stillness. You know, the, the African proverb, the times are urgent, let us slow down. 
and and open that dialogue with the ancestral realms, with the more than human realms, with the the guy in whole, and start asking for support and permission and an opening of dialogue rather than imposing our totalitarian ways of more progress and more development and more, more, more. I like the ontological approach you you have, you know, the the entities, the groupings, and it's it's where you're taking a look at what's been parsed as the human value to be a product or to be commodified within the box. I call it the box. Um, and I think about what is the exit strategy? Of course, we can all talk about that. And there are many ways, but the answer doesn't come from in the box. It always seems to me coming from outside. So this will lead me to asking you a question about the five elements, mandala. Would you talk to that? What's the word you, you, you've you used before? Parabox. Right? You, you, you merged paradigm and, and, and the box. There is um, there's no word for time, so there's no beginning and ending. And there's no cause and effect. And there's no superior or inferior. And this is the parabox. And we're describing everything from within that box because we don't know outside of that box. So it's the parabox that we are in. For a long time during my adult life, I've been watching people trying to look for exit strategy from that parabox. So I think that would lead us right into the five elements mandala. So as Alnor and I were engaged in, in speaking with over 100 people from different traditions um, and really in this inquiry of what is post-capitalism, what's going on within philanthropy, what's going on with, with um, the, the movements around transitions and justice, we recognize that this invocation of post-capitalist realities, if we said, is in a way uh, a new ancient and emerging way that is both existing and not in this way. And where we started looking towards is what is it to imagine transition pathways? What is it to imagine what we spoke to of this accumulation of wealth and capital? If it is the world's collective endowment, what might be some ways that we can support this initiatory moment as we as we're in surrender and walking to an unknown place? And so from that, recognizing that in some ways we're speaking to that which is beyond this, um, the, the visible world, the material world, what we can see and touch and feel, we're, but we're working in that, that ontological shift. And yet there are some things that, that or there are some ways that we can um, look at what can be done today, tomorrow with endowments, with the, with the grants, with this legacy of philanthropy and this wealth accumulation. And so from that, we were inspired to um, come forward with something called this five element mandala and inspired by mandalas, which are a journey inward and outward and often um, use elemental forces um, as, as anchors, as acupuncture points. And so this is what we created with this this five element mandala. And um, maybe Elnora, do you want to talk us through kind of the axes and the elements with that as kind of an introduction for what this is? It's our subjective grappling with ontological shifts of answer. So then how shall we be and what can we do? 
Yeah, and to say that um, mandala in, in Sanskrit uh, means circle, right? And so we're trying to invoke circle ways. And, and we're not saying that uh, the mandala holds any answers. We, we call it more like coordinates of possibility. And throughout the, the book, what we're trying to do is be in, in this practice of um, what we call embodied cognition. And there's a lot of exercises throughout the book uh, as well uh, around this. And then also transrationality. So we're, we're not saying there's no place for rationality, but it, it needs to just be in the pantheon of uh, ways of knowing and being with all the other ways of knowing and being that are equally as valid. And then also non-dualistic thinking and being. So trying to grapple with multiple simultaneous, um, often seemingly competing ideas. And so that, that's why we work with the mandala is to just allow space for transrationality, to allow space for non-duality, um, to allow space for embodied cognition. And um, well, where our starting place was, was this is not just for uh, you know, philanthropy as in foundations, right? Like we are all engaged in, in philanthropy by dint of being interconnected and related, right? And it's also a, a sort of a coordinates of possibility for activism and organizing work as well. And so that was kind of the starting place for Lynn and I. And, and, and we thought, okay, well, um, what we would need to do is not, not just go to the novelty of what's next, but have a kind of lens of both, uh, transformation and creation. We almost thought of it as like the, the kind of Y axis, the kind of vertical axis, um, where at, at the, at the bottom of that, the root of that would be the earth element, which is creating post-capitalist infrastructure, essentially um, bioregional sufficiency, food, water, land, uh, energy, medicinal uh, education, community infrastructure, post-capitalist infrastructure. It must be rooted in earth, right? As, as you would say, Teokas, and earth first as the, the default logic. And then um, on the other side, on the top of that axis would be air, which is like the oxygen we breathe, the the ideological, cosmological worldviews, and that we, we need to spend some of our time in shifting the discourse of the dominant culture. And, and the starting place for that is to really understand the impoverishment of the dominant culture, right? So Because if we don't understand the impoverishment of it, we will try to go and export that culture around the world, which is essentially what development is. And so how do we create uh, what we would say new, ancient, emerging cultural contexts? And then the, the X axis that sort of um, merges with that is a, a sort of solidarity restoration lens because we, we don't want to continue the ahistorical amnesia of neoliberal logic. And it re, it's not restoration to some idyllic state, but it's more in the sense of right relation, right? That you can't actually go forward unless um, there, there is a... It's not restoration as returning, but restoration as in a symbiotic relationship, right? Which requires humility, which requires apology, right? It requires, there's a lot to get there. And we saw that on, on the one side, on the left side, let's say the element of water, which is solidarity with indigenous peoples, where the, you know, we think of the almost as like tributaries, the veins of Pachamama, the, the wisdom keepers, the holders of uh, that unbroken line of, of symbiosis. 
And then on the other side, the fire element is the solidarity with social movements, right? Historically marginalized peoples, uh, the world majority who are organizing uh, their voices, organizing their bodies uh, to say that uh, this is what works for us at the local level. And, and really that's all that matters, right? And so the role of government is not, we're not saying, you know, there should be no government, but the role of government or state is to localize power to the people that are most affected by the decisions that are made. And so you, you have these sort of four elements of air, of ideas, of earth, of infrastructure, of, uh, of water, um, solidarity with indigenous peoples and fire, solidarity with social movements. And in the center of that, the fifth element of ether, which is the, the recultivation of life force, which is we, we also have to look at the, the state change that's required for us to create, restore, cultivate post-capitalist realities. In the activist world and in the funding world, there, we often ignore the physical aspect of the body, the communal and spiritual aspects of healing. And it's not like healing as an end state, but also understanding healing as a communal act, right? And we're not trying to um, be well-adjusted in the sick society, but to, to sort of hold space for all the ways in which the, the separation that is the sickness can be removed. Let, let's say it that way. Yeah, beloved brother, everything I felt to add just spoke to the one piece I would say is that when we speak about this restoration and solidarity, um, we recognize that solidarity, especially as we're speaking with social movements and across the many times the geopolitical South, the world's majority and indigenous, this is not an imposed reality of I am in solidarity. This is an ever ongoing practice. And it is a place of humility and is something that arises when there is right relationship, when there is restoration. And um, and so in this way, we're invoking this non-ahistorical, but finding that right relationship as a way with, with this ether of almost finding what is that um, alchemical state change where something else can arise. And we look at this recognizing that this is a book about, you know, the title with philanthropy. What we're also suggesting in this is a hard examination of the whole system of philanthropy that is continuing to invest its endowment, to grow the endowment, to give away less than 5% or 5% of that in the U.S. context in grant making to say, what if those endowment funds, those grant making funds, all the funds are actually you blended in creative ways and with, an, a, with a shift of consciousness, with a shift of ontology to support anywhere in this mandala. So it is a way to, to say like, what would it be to, um, to give those monies in, in right relationship in different ways and not just on the, the tiny little monies that come through the grant making side, but the entire um, philanthropy really grappling with that. And in that way, this five element mandala and some of those practices is also uh, a question of what is it um, to consider hospicing the very notion of mm. philanthropy itself. Incredible, you two, thank you for this interview. Just to add some thoughts, when I'm when I'm speaking English, I have to discipline myself because it often contains amount of 
conflict and antagonism in the same sentence and have to deal with it quite a bit without going one place or the other. But, you know, people waiting for the upswing of capitalism, that's what I feel is going on. But more to the, to the ideas of practice. It may be practice for some, but it's a living for others. It's the way we live. So it's synchronizing those practices so they become living, the living how we live. That's part of the signs that something is changing, of course. Part of that also is understanding the detoxing. So when I originally read the, the manuscript, I felt a little detoxed, uh, Western detoxed, if I could say that. And part of this is understanding what this book is about. These two authors, Lynn Murphy and Elnor Ladha, and a lot of input from, as you say, went around and talked to all kinds of people and post-capitalist philanthropy and healing wealth in a time of crisis. Looking forward to thinking with you some more, being in presence with you. And I really like that. And if I want to borrow it, uh, Elnor, is they're, they're present-obic. That speaks to the language. Any final thoughts? No, thank you. Thank you, Tiokas, and thank you for the, your contribution to the book and being one of the people we spoke to and um, and just for the work you're doing with First Voices and the, the well, let's, let's call it cultural activism, even though I know that's not, that's not uh, accurate. But um, yeah, just the, the, the way you walk and, and it's been an inspiration for us in, in, in deep ways. Yeah, I would just add my deep thanks and um, just to be so deeply entangled with, with you both and trusting the, the guidance that comes through. And thank you very much for yeah, speaking with us and early on. And I feel like um, there's a, a profound gift that you offer, which kind of keeps us in this beyond just the practice, but in how we live and how we're how our beings are are grappling with this material as well. And so just deep gratitude. Great honor to be with you both. Thank you. Thank you. It's good for us because we want everything to live is where I come from. We want it all to live. Let's do it that way. Um, but thank you again. Thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. My name is Diokasen Ghost Horse. If you want more information about the little quote that I read at the end of the first half of this interview on First Voices Radio, it is culturehack.io. So those of you who would want more information and even to read or reread the quote that I read from the article, beginning with, as Wendell Berry reminds us, we are not likely to be granted another world to plunder in comparison for our pillage of this one, nor are we likely to believe much longer in our ability to outsmart by means of science and technology our economic stupidity. Again, I do this so that you may live, have some empathy for the earth.
body 